0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
1: Hello and welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. This week we are on the waters, we're at sea, we are sailing as Rod Stewart would say and we are talking to the 1992 and 1996 Olympic sailing gold medalist Teresa Zabel. In 1992, Teresa won gold with Patricia Guerra and in 1996 with Begonia via Du dufresne Teresa also won five world titles during her amazing career. In 1994, named the World Sailor of the Year as well, an incredible career that she has had. Since then, she's worked in the European Parliament, She has also been a vice president for the Spanish Olympic Committee and is now running the foundation Ecomar. We'll put links to all of them at the end of the podcast notes. And Teresa also explains where you can find out more about her and Ecomar at the end of the conversation. Really interesting chat with Teresa. One of the the most important things, I think, in this conversation is when she talks about the disappointment of not being selected at the 1988 Seoul Games and how that actually propelled her to her later success. All of the talk about EcoMar and how she is helping encourage kids not only to sail but to think about the environment, that's a really good part of the conversation. Plus, we talk about how it is working with other sailors and building a team together, as well as the side of the sport which a lot of athletes have to think about, and that is raising finance and raising sponsorship. All that is included in today's Best in the World with Teresa Zabel. Just before we get to the conversation, I want to remind you we are now part of the Sportacino Network. Please like our Facebook page. Facebook.com forward slash Sportacino. Also, follow us on Twitter at Sportacino. And of course, all of these podcasts from the best in the world, plus our episodes for our video casts, are at Sportacino.com. Please go and check that all out. Also, we're on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, people. All right, that's enough plugs for the moment. But let's get started with our conversation with the Olympic sailing champion, Theresa
0: Isabel. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
1: Teresa, Isabel, welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr, two-time Olympic champion in sailing, five-time world champion. So delighted to have you on the program. Of course, most of that success was back in the nineties. So why don't you just catch up our listeners onto what you're up to right now, Teresa?
2: Well, now I do quite a few different things. When I gave up Olympic sailing, I started a foundation, which is called Ecomar. And we work especially with children, trying to get them into into the world of sailing and also other nautical sports. And we do this um, well to get them enjoying uh, water sports, but also to involve them in the um, in the marine world, in the marine environment, and educating them in how to look after our planet, basically through marine sports.
0: Mm.
2: And I also I also work uh, to earn a living because the foundation is uh, is is fun. Um, I give a lot of conferences. I do consultancy work with different um, different businesses. Uh, in spain and and abroad and um and I'm on a few boards of different uh foundations uh businesses uh, related to to sports world so yeah i'm i don't get bored i can assure you
1: <laughs> it sounds very busy do you still keep a similar routine as to what you may have kept when you were competing as as far as like morning routine
2: um my routine is a bit more hectic I would say because I travel a lot. Uh, I used to travel a lot for sailing, but when I sailed maybe my routine was a bit more um I kept more to a timetable because I used to wake up in the morning, go and do my physical training and then I would go and do my sailing training. Uh so I had a bit more of a of a time schedule. Now because I travel so much due to my due to my work, my schedule is a bit more hectic so I find it more difficult to to abide to a to a timetable but yeah even so I always try and keep to a as much of a routine as possible trying to do my physical workout uh, even though I may be in different places uh, either here in Madrid which is my hometown at the moment or or elsewhere and I still try and keep to my diet as much as possible and yeah, and try and do a healthy lifestyle, which is really, really important for those of us that have been top athletes.
1: Mm, well, fantastic. We're going to go into a bit more detail on a few of those things as we go through this podcast. Are you doing much sailing now, Teresa?
2: I don't do any competitive sailing. Uh, I would love to, but the truth is that I really don't find time for it. Um, because all my spare time is basically dedicated to the activities we do with with my foundation and so as all of this is associated with, with children, then I normally spend all my spare time sailing with with them. And this is pretty much basic um, initiation level sailing. So it's great fun. I sail with kids, sometimes with disabled children or, or even disabled youngsters or, or adults. And yeah, it's great fun, but it doesn't really too much competitive sailing because I I just basically don't get don't get the time to do so. Mm.
1: Did you have like uh, an official retirement of competitive sailing, or, or did it just phase out?
2: No, it it pretty much phased out after um, uh, a time in ninety eight. I decided that I wanted to have a break. Um, I had a daughter; she was one and a half, and I realized that in that year and a half, I had gone back to competitive sailing, and I'd hardly sort of seen her in that year and a half. And so I decided that I was going to have a year off and dedicate a year to to Olympia and to basically you know make the most of her. And so I did that. Uh, the truth is that in that year, i I got involved in other things. It's when I started, I created my foundation. And and then um, I just got so involved in other things that I never really got back into competitive sailing. Had I not taken that year off, I'm sure I would have gone on for longer. But then you just can't look back because things just you know things just keep churning. And then when you realise, then it's you know it's too late. Um, in 90, this is in 98, and then in 99 I. Uh, I went into the European Parliament to start working for sports from another aspect. Uh, sports uh, just went into the European institutions then, and there was a lot to be done to get sport uh, into the European Treaty. And I was asked to go and develop a, a role there, which which I did for five years. And then things basically took on from there. So by the time I'd done that, it was it was difficult to go back into a into developing again a a sporting career in the Olympic world Mm,
1: that's really interesting because it's it's lovely that it's all kind of evolved for you while there's some athletes who they win a gold medal and they retire and then they're almost like what should I do next how do I cope so it's nice that you've been able to kind of organically move to these uh different uh, jobs and passions and everything like that when did the the you said the foundation started after you um kind of took that year off um when did the idea of the foundation come about and and was there a specific thing in your in your competing that happened which made you think not only i want to teach kids but i want to help teach them about the environment as well this is
2: an idea that was um bubbling up or i wouldn't say all the way along my sporting career but maybe in the sort of second half or in the last years of my sporting career. And it was sort of two things that came up at the same time. Um, One of the issues was that in Spain is such a wonderful country to sail in. And in reality, not that many people sail. You go to other countries, you know, France, uh, UK, not to say Australia or New Zealand, and so many people sail. And then you come to Spain, and we have such a wonderful coastline, such incredible weather, and people don't sail. And it's a it's a cultural issue, uh, basically. And they just don't think of sailing as one of their sporting options. So it was uh, a way of sort of saying, of saying, we have to try and get children involved in sailing. We have to try and get sailing involved in schools and let them know that sailing is another is another option that they can take into consideration when they're looking at sports that they might want to get involved in. So that was one of the of the issues that I wanted to to tackle. And then the other issue was the environmental issue. That you know, lots of a few years ago, we didn't used to recycle. The sea just used to be like a great big garbage patch that we used to just sort of let everything dive into without wonder, you know, without really worrying about it. And so it was like sort of saying. Uh, let's start educating people that the sea is something that we'd really have to start looking after because if not it's going to be a big issue in the future so bringing these two things together is basically what Ecomar which is how my foundation is called is uh, really deals with.
0: Mm,
1: Fantastic and 20 years Nearly since you began, um, Ecomar,
3: mm-hmm.
1: have you seen the culture change much in Spain? with people getting more interested in sailing? Not, not necessarily, but because of Ecomar, but just in general, has that culture adapted at all? Do you think
2: it has adapted? There are quite a few schools now that do do sailing, especially in the after Easter in the summer term. There are um, there are schools that do sailing as part of their curricula, uh, which is which is great. And there are quite a few children from maybe the sort of lower social classes that now think of sailing as one of their sporting options, which before wouldn't have happened. We're reaching 15,000 children every year, which is quite a significant number. And if you think that we've been going on now for, for 18 years, this is our 19th year of activity. Well, you know, it, it adds up and we would love to reach more. But obviously, you know, you need quite a large budget to reach more. So we reach children through quite a few schools and through quite a few you know other channels as well. Um, yeah, it, obviously more can be done, but every you know everything adds up, and we're very happy and very proud to be one of the associations that does, that does add up to this, and we know that we've inspired many others also to to follow in our footsteps. So, yeah, if anyone else can add up and do other things, then it's great. Um, and we have seen uh, mentalities change, and um, and people change in their in their attitudes. Recycling, for example, has, cha- has changed massively in the last years. Uh, when we started doing our recycling workshops, I remember that basically the children had no idea what all this was about, and now the children really know. Lots of times, you sit down and start talking recycling with them, and they start teaching you lots of times in things that they're doing at home. And this is fantastic. Uh, so, yes, and we love doing a coastal cleanup up with, with children and children have great fun going and cleaning the coastline with us. And we do lots of these activities every year. And this is becoming really massive. And so this is really good that all the children want to do this and that lots of the sailing clubs, for example, that we work with, Um, are implementing this every year with all the people that do activities with them.
3: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr.
1: More from Teresa in just a moment, but I want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. 180,000 titles for you to choose from. I'm just about to listen to Andreas Iniesta's audiobook. I'll let you know if it's any good in future episodes. I'm really looking forward to it. one of the greatest Players in football history, of course, guided Spain to victory at the 2010 World Cup, as well as European Championships in 2008 and 2012. Also won many titles for Barcelona. I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on football and more about his career and life in general using Audible. And you know what? You could download that book for free. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best. And you can check out their service for 30 days for free. And that includes one free download, which could be that book by NES to go and check it out. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, from one Spanish great to another, let's return to the conversation with Teresa Isabel.
0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, from what I've seen, you were born in Ipswich but moved to um, Spain at a pretty early age. When did you first get started in sailing yourself, Teresa?
0: Well,
2: I'd sailed a little bit when I was, when I was a kid, but I didn't really actually get involved in sailing, um, sort of going to do it periodically until I was 14. There wasn't really a sailing club in the, in the little village where I grew up. Uh, that I could go and and do it periodically until until that age so although I had sailed a little bit before that it was it was really really very insignificant so I actually started sailing sort of going every weekend when I was 14.
1: And when did you realize that this is something you were good at and that you wanted to kind of take to the next level rather than just oh I'm having a bit of fun that you realize okay I could be going for world titles Olympic titles now
2: well when I when I started sailing it was you know in six months I realized that, that was going to be a sport that I really wanted to develop
0: oh, wow.
2: um, I, I wouldn't say professionally but but yes that I really wanted to dedicate a lot of time to because I I just fell in love with it so I really started doing it at a I wouldn't say at a high level, but yes, dedicating a lot of time to it. All my weekends, I was down at the sailing club, and I was sailing all the time. Not during the week because I was obviously at school and I didn't have time to do so. But uh, summer time, I was I just spent all day long there. Uh, I started not wanting to go away during the summer because I just wanted to to sail, and then I started competing heavily and I started doing really well. Unfortunately, women's sailing wasn't included in the in the Olympic program at that time. So although I always had the dream of wanting to go into the Olympic games, it was a sort of a dream that I didn't know how it was going to come true. Uh, but it was a dream that, that was always at the back of my mind. So it was one of these dreams that you think, mm, mm, I, I want it to come true, but I don't know how it's going to be possible. <laughs> <laughs> And then one day it did.
1: Yeah. What year was it? Was it eighty-eight that it started, or was it before then?
2: No, eighty-eight. It started in the Seoul Olympic Games, but I didn't make it to the games until ninety-two.
1: What? Why? Why didn't you make the the games in eighty-eight? Was Was it just a bit too early for you at the time?
2: No, actually. Um, as far as age is concerned, and because I was nineteen then, I should have made it to the games in in Los Angeles. But the women's sailing wasn't included in the program in in Los Angeles uh, because I was performing at a really high level by then. So then, after Los Angeles is when they included women's sailing in the Olympic program for the next games for Seoul. Mm-hmm. So I started I started sailing the boat that they chose for for Seoul, and. I started doing really well. And in fact, uh, the year of the, of the games, of, uh, of the Seoul games, um, I was fourth in the World Championships, fourth in the European Championships. I actually could have won them both, but it just didn't turn out that way. So, so anyhow, it was still a great result. But in the, um, in the trial process that, uh, that we did here in Spain, um, I did really well also, but suddenly my federation decided to send somebody else. Which is something that, quite honestly, I I never understood. But, but that's just how how things work out some sometimes. And it was a a really big letdown for me. And in fact, I I gave up sailing for for a few months. And um, it's probably the you know the biggest sports crisis I I ever went through. And um, not going to Seoul has been the the biggest letdown I've I've gone through in my in my sports career. But then I overcame that and went back for the Barcelona games.
1: Yeah, and of course, great success there. We'll talk more about Barcelona in, in just a moment. Why do you think they, they didn't select you? And Was there any uh, appeals process or anything like that?
2: Well, I tried to appeal, but because, because our trial process was so, uh, so little time before the games, then uh, it was basically, there was no time to to do this. So, you know, there was nothing to be done. It, it was one of these sort of really weird situations where um, it was just done and you just had to put up with it. Because by the time I got any answer from anybody, you know, the, the games had passed. So <laughs> it was just too late. Mm. And, you know, I think there's always quite a bit of... um there's always issues around some of the trial processes and in some of the games in many countries. And this was one of the ones that we'd had in Spain. And yeah, it was a pity. It was still something that comes up every now and again. And I think many people didn't understand it. But anyhow, you know, these things that happen. Um, and looking back on it now after many, many years, well, I think it's something that, Although it was very unfair and I still don't understand why it happened, I, I do think it made me stronger for, for the rest of my sports career. And, and that helped me probably to, to become the athlete that I came after that and helped me to, to win everything I won you know, in the future. Mm. And so, well, you have to look on the positive side of things and not, and not bask on the negative side because it doesn't take you anywhere.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, On the podcast a few weeks ago, we had Emma Snowsill, the uh, triathlon Olympic champion from 2008. And she went for a similar process both in 2004 and 2012. And it it did actually help propel her and and, and make her perform better. Um, You said you took a few months off there, um, Teresa. Mm -hmm. What then kind of reignited your your passion and your desire to to go for the next cycle to go for 92 was it just or right I've, I've taken a bit of time off and I'm ready to go again was there something that happens what what made made you make that decision
2: well at the beginning you you sort of think oh it's really not worth it it's such a big letdown I'm I'm not prepared for this you know you 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 feel really you feel really annoyed um so you just think I'm giving it all up. But then, you know, you calm down and you, you think, uh, you look at it in a more analytical way. And then you think, well, the next games are in Barcelona. It's only four years time or three years and 10 months or eight months or whatever's left. And you think, well, it's an opportunity that, you know, I've been preparing for this years. It's always been my dream to go to the games especially in my case that the games are going to be in my country which is a a great opportunity that not that many athletes have and so you think well you know let's not let one of these um stupid decisions uh get in get in the way of blocking my my personal dream and so you think okay let's just set it all aside and and go for it again and then i think you know you just come to terms with whatever happened you think okay let's Let's push it aside and let's and let's go for it because in the end, um, you have to admit that what's in front of you is is a wonderful opportunity that's not going to come back, so you don't want to let it escape. Mm,
1: and of course, ninety-two, you you win the gold medal. You mentioned being
2: mm-hmm.
3: at a
1: home Olympics. There, does that make a difference in your performance in any way? Do you think?
2: Well, being at a at a home Olympics is, you know, it's. Um, it's a double way of looking at it. Um, in one way, you're you're at home. So it is the sort of way of thinking, okay, you've got the home crowd, which in, in sailing probably doesn't, uh, you don't really feel it that much because you're out in the middle of the water. So it's not like being in the athletic stadium. Hmm. Um, but you do feel that you have the pressure on the other hand, because everybody's expecting you to win. And especially because, we'd had such an incredible run-up to the Games. Uh, The year before the Games, we'd, I mean, we we arrived at the Games being national champions, European champions, and world champions. So when we got to the Games, and especially this is very much so in the Spanish media, they sort of made their lists of, uh, we're definitely going to win these medals, we possibly might win these other medals, and we have, you know, remote possibility of winning these other medals and so they had like these three categories and and we were in this category of oh we're definitely going to win this medal (laughs) (laughs) which is extremely uncomfortable to be honest because if you don't win it seems like you've let everybody down and if you do win well you've just done what everybody expected you to do Mm. and we started in Barcelona with a terrible result the first day because we had a disqualification for an over the line, which, to be honest, wasn't even ours. It was Estonia that was over the line, but they wrote it down as EST for Spain instead of EST for Estonia, and Oof. we never got that sorted out. So we had to we had to go forward with that, and which is incredibly difficult. But in the end, we managed to pull it off. And you know, this was an incredible burden, and very very difficult to to go forward with that but anyhow the the pressure on us was was immense but we managed which is the which is the the great thing however having said that if if somebody had come up to us the first day after that awful first day and said um we'll offer you a medal and it can be bronze we would have signed
1: oh <laughs> well I'm i'm glad you didn't <laughs> yeah so I. <laughs> talking about pressure there, were there any methods? Were there any things you would was there anything you would do to um counter the pressure? Would there be any kind of meditation? Would there be cutting yourself off from the world? like what was there anything you would specifically do?
2: Well, this was twenty five years ago. This year it's going to be Barcelona's twenty fifth anniversary. And things were quite different then to what they are now. I mean, now all the athletes are sort of really connected to the world with WhatsApp, Instagram, Twitter and all these things that they, they have a lot of these kind of pressures that obviously then we didn't have any of, of all these things because that didn't exist. You know, we didn't even have mobile phones. So it was very different in that kind of aspect. And everything was a lot was a lot simpler in the way that okay we had a great team uh we had a great coach but we didn't have a psychologist in the team or we didn't have a massagist or we didn't have any of these things because even though we had everything that we thought we needed um, we didn't have a budget for any of these things that I just mentioned Mm. and it's not that the Spanish had a a bad team it's just that um, I think every team was basically like like we were and now you see the the teams, and um I've been going to the last games because um in between other things, I've been Vice President of the Spanish Olympic Committee for for eight years, and it's been one of my responsibilities. and um, And things have progressed a lot in that in that sense. So they do have all these tools that they can use in their advantage that twenty five years ago we didn't used to have. We had a great um, chief of the Spanish Olympic sailing team who who was the great guy. Uh, he was a doctor and he he dedicated a lot of his time to us. And so when any of us had a problem, he would just sort of take us aside and talk to us. And and yeah, but he was a professional doctor, not anything else. And, and we used to help each other out a lot. You know, when one had a problem, we'd always... Go and try and help them out, but it was, and I think all of the teams worked pretty much like this. It was, it was a different era.
1: Mm. You you had two different partners um, at the Olympics, Patricia and uh, Begonia in '96. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your relationship like with them? Were you closer to either of them, and, and did you need to be close for you both to be successful, both pairs to be successful?
2: Yeah, I had a great friendship with with both of them. Mm, it was quite a difficult relationship, to quite, quite a different relationship, to be honest. Because with uh, with Patricia, when we started preparing for the for the Barcelona Games, um, we started from a from a very similar from a very similar level. Patricia and I were both the same age, and and we started this um, we started this uh, this project together. And then I I would say that we we grew up in this um, in in this project together and we developed it together and so it was it was really quite it was really quite fun and we became very good friends we didn't know each other that well when we started off but we, we really became very good friends in in the whole in you know in the whole get together towards towards Barcelona. Then Patricia decided after Barcelona that um, she was moving out of Spain for personal reasons and and that she wasn't going to continue another four years until, until the Atlanta Games. So as I wanted to continue and prepare the, the Atlanta Games, I had to find somebody else. And finding somebody else at that level in Spain was just impossible because it didn't exist. So I, I was lucky to find Begonia who who was not at our level obviously she hadn't gone to the games but she was a great a great asset to the team uh, I had to dedicate quite a lot of time to to be able to bring her up to the um, to you know to the olympic standard but the effort that Begonia put into the team was was massive so it was really great to have her in there and we became very good friends also and this is great because you don't always uh, become good friends with uh, with the person you're sailing with and it's really great if you do, because you spend so much time together traveling around and, and you know, being on the circuit and, um, and you know, living in the apartment and traveling by car. And so it's, it makes it so much easier if you do get on with the person that you're sailing with. So that's really great. And both of them were, but well, both of them are really great people. So that makes it so much easier.
1: What wonderful, getting to enjoy your success with people you enjoy their time with. That's superb. Um, I know we're running out of time. I just want to get a couple more questions in. Um, you, you subsequently started your own private team um, and kind of had to find sponsors for that. Of course, in various different sports, that can be a very difficult thing for athletes to go about. How did you find that? And, and was there a process you went uh, that you did to try and get sponsors?
2: Yeah, after after Barcelona it was quite um it was quite a curious process because um, you know when the games finished here it was as if it was, it was as if the world had finished in the sporting world <laughs> for a few months. Then everything sort of regained and regained its normal momentum. But for a few months it was as if the the world had finished and uh, wanting to do something in the sporting world people would sort of look at you sort of saying mm, sports but that, that finished in on the 4th of July when when the games finished you know um so you'd go back to the to the companies and sort of say no but I want to continue you no know, there's another olympic games in 4 years time atlanta and and they would and look at you sort of as if you were gone crazy but yeah after a few months everybody became became active again and they started becoming enthusiastic and yeah I found that everybody became really great and I found quite a lot of uh, support um, especially private support and I was lucky enough to find really good sponsors that that supported me to go to to Atlanta and we we created a really great team so it was great to get there with uh with the private support and then after some time the the public support came on board as well it took some time to, you know, to regain the the momentum that they'd lost lost after Barcelona. But the good thing is that everything that was put in place for the Barcelona Games, even though it took a few months to to get in place again for the future, it is still now in place after twenty five years and oh. it's still working. So I think this is really positive for Spanish sport.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely fantastic. Well, it's been so good to talk to you, Teresa. Thank you so much for giving us uh, the insight of a two-time Olympic champion, five-time world champion. Just before you go, why don't you tell us where we can find you on social media and also where we can find and learn more about Ecomar, please?
2: Well, um, Ecomar can be found on our website. It's www.fundacionecomar.org. www.fundacionecomar.org. And we're also on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook with fundacionecomar.org. And my personal um, webpage is tzabel.org. And I'm also active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram with tzabel.org. So happy to welcome everybody there. And thank you very much also. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Teresa. It's been so good to uh, learn from you on this program. Teresa Zabel. thank you for being the best in the world.
2: Thank you. Bye.
0: The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr.
1: Thanks again to Theresa Isabel for being on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. is not the first sailor we've had on the programme before. Maybe you want to go back and listen to our conversation with Anna Tunnicliffe, who won a gold medal in the 2008 Olympics and is now a CrossFit competitor. Yes, quite the change, and we discussed all of that on the podcast Plus, one of our earliest interviews was with Ian Williams, the World Match Racing Tour champion. He has been on the programme as well. Lots of interesting information from him. Go back and listen to both of those episodes. Plus, much more on iTunes. And you can do that by subscribing to our channel on iTunes. Also, please give us a rating and review. It really helps our show. And we've got all kinds of different guests that you can go back to listen to. If you like track and field, you might want to listen to the reigning shot put champion Michelle carter she was on the program only a few weeks ago maybe you want to listen to the relay champion darren cabell if you're into boxing maybe you want to listen to lee selby he's been on the program we've had so many great guests on the best in the world with richard parr and i would love it if you'd go back and listen to them and learn from these amazing champions Alright, that's it for this week. I'll be back with you with another Olympic champion, world champion, world record holder or a world number one next week on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Goodbye.
0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.